Welcome to FASD Hope, a podcast about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder through the lens of parent advocates with over 19 years of lived experience. FASD Hope provides awareness, information, and inspiration to those people whose lives have been touched by FASD. And I'm the host of FASD Hope, Natalie Vecchione. Welcome to today's episode. Thanks for joining us today. Today, I'll be speaking with Dr. Natalie Novick-Brown. Dr. Natalie Novick-Brown is a psychologist with a nationwide forensic practice who is based in the Seattle-Tacoma area of Washington State. Formerly trained in fetal alcohol spectrum disorders and forensic investigation in sexual offense and parenting matters, as well as clinical psychology, Dr. Brown is certified by the Association of State and Provincial Licensing Boards and licensed as a psychologist in Washington, Florida, and Alaska. Welcome to FASD Hope, everybody. I am honored to have our guest on today's show. She is a clinician. She is an author. She is a researcher, and she has done a lot of work in the field of FASD. And she has edited a book called Evaluating Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorders in the Forensic Context. So we're here today to talk about all of the work that she has done. And uh, with that lengthy introduction, I am so happy to be speaking with Dr. Natalie Novick-Brown. Dr. Brown, welcome to FASD Hope. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. So can you share with our listeners how you became involved in FASD research and particularly with forensics in your clinical work? Yes, I um, was interested. I've always been interested in forensic psychology. And uh, during my uh, graduate studies in psychology, clinical psychology, I had an opportunity to do uh, an internship in forensic psychology. And um, after completing the internship and completing my doctoral work and obtaining my PhD in clinical psych, I um, then uh, was given a, an opportunity, a rather extraordinary opportunity to work with a pioneer researcher in the FASD field, Anne Streisguth. Anne offered me a um, postdoctoral fellowship in FASD at the University of Washington. And um, so I immediately um, accepted her offer and began working with her and uh, received formal training from her in FASD. And um, that was a life-changing event. Since then, I have specialized in fetal alcohol spectrum disorders and um, both in the clinical context and the forensic context. At this point, I've probably done several hundred evaluations, FASD evaluations. Um, and um, many of those in the um, capital murder context, unfortunately. And that is one of the main reasons why I wanted to talk to you today, because of your extensive work in FASD and forensics. And as parents, we often hear a lot about these negative statistics, these cases, and we want to learn from what you have learned, particularly in, in just your evaluations, what you've, what you've learned and, and things that can be taught to us so that we can be proactive in our parenting and caregiving journeys. Specifically in FASD and forensics, in addition to capital 
murder cases. Have you studied or researched any other particular types of cases or subtopics within FASD and forensics? Yes, um, I've also specialized in um, parenting evaluations over the years, and I've done several hundred parenting evaluations as well. And um, within um, the parenting con context, I see fetal alcohol spectrum disorders um, in about, I would say, 15 to 20% of the cases I've done. And most of the time, uh, the children are not diagnosed with an FASD. In fact, it's very rare when they are. But given my background, I can tell that a child likely does have an FASD, and I often made recommendations for assessment. And um, you use the word proactive when you ask the question, and that is the key, one of the key things in parenting um, a child with FASD, being proactive, creating a very structured environment that is geared toward giving the child a lot of attention and a lot of guidance and um, parameters and um, behavioral modification essentially done in the home setting is what I'm talking about. Um, these children have brain damage. And so because of that, they have very poor self-regulation. And in order to um, train a child over time to be better able to control their behavior, it takes um, a lot of time and a lot of attention and being uh, constantly aware of the child's behaviors, uh, not sending them out to play with peers without watching, without supervising, but, but um, actually being there and watching and observing and helping the child learn appropriate behavior. Um, and we know it, that's because of the dismaturity that's from the brain damage of fetal alcohol in that yes. the, developmentally, if you're sending a child to play with their peers, they may not be, you know, they're chronologically the same age, but developmentally they're not. So like you said, I'm, I'm so I'm writing this down for our, for our listeners, being proactive is key in making structures, you know, boundaries, uh, just walking alongside uh, your children when they're, we're, you know, for example, when they're going out to play, because that that's a theme that's often repeated by, by guests on, on our show is, is that, dismaturity with that, you need to be proactive and almost one step ahead of, of it, if you will. Yes. And that dismaturity happens for a couple of reasons, not only the brain damage that the child is born with, but also brain development throughout childhood and FASD is delayed by many, many years. So when you have, when you reach your young adult years and you're, and you have FASD, Functionally, you're still at a very um, childlike level in terms of brain maturity. So it's a double whammy, essentially. And um, the structure um, has to be 24-7. So that means not only at home, but also within the school setting and the community setting as well. So, yeah. Right. A wraparound approach, essentially. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm so glad you, you said that about dismaturity, Dr. Brown, because not only is it from the brain damage, but yes, it's from that lagging brain development. And we know also that as the child gets older and becomes a teen and a young adult and adult, that gap in dismaturity widens because there are so many expectations 
of that individual and they're not able to keep up with it because of that lagging or very delayed brain development if they ever reach a particular point. So yes, and that is that's a constant topic in emails and messages that we receive about why are things getting worse as they get older and, and explaining having a, a young adult with an FASD, we've learned that the supports really need to strengthen as they get older. So often we think, oh, they'll get older, they'll catch up. No, it's I found it's actually the opposite that, like you said, they need more support and more um, wraparounds. Otherwise, they will find themselves in situations where they will be in trouble with the law or, or have negative consequences. The most dangerous period um, in uh, these individuals' lives is transition from the school years into the young adult years, because typically the, the structure is gone when uh, these, these people are in the real world and they don't have the school structure around them. They're expected to make decisions on their own and to support themselves and uh, maybe meet somebody and start families and so forth. And sadly, they don't have a clue. They don't, they're still functionally um, at a a very young childlike level. And uh, as you say, the gap keeps widening. There was some um, stunning research um, about 30 years ago by Dr. Streisku that found adults with FASD are functionally still at a, an elementary school age in terms of their functional capacity. And what I find in my work, because I evaluate people with FASD who have um, been in prison for a number of years and they're in their 40s and 50s, eventually these individuals do tend to respond well to structure. In fact, they tend to flourish in highly structured environments. But hopefully, you don't have to create a prison-like environment for these folks to do well. Exactly. But it does take a lot of structure. And they, they eventually, by their 40s and 50s, um, are doing extremely well. But they've had years of structure to help. And again, we don't want that, you know, that structure that they're flourishing, especially in, in prison. That's not where we want that education and learning to take place. You know, obviously, we want it to take place in a structured environment where they're not incarcerated. But yes, you know, talking about and and that really resonates with me as a parent, because it's true, you have this structure, whether they're private schooled, homeschooled, regular schooled, you have a structure in place for X amount of years, and then all of a sudden it's done. And if you don't have something very structured to kind of walk along and then replace it eventually, there really is so much dysregulation, so much (laughs) idle time, which leads to just unfortunate symptoms and symptoms becoming secondary and tertiary. And a key um, for young adults who are about to go out into the real world, a key for parents is to provide enough incentives to um, kind of uh, pique the interest, hook the interest of these young folks, because they're looking at their age peers who are functioning independently, thinking they can do that too, when they they actually can't do it without getting into trouble and harming themselves. So... um, so it's really tricky for parents, parents to be able to um, find ways to uh, build that structure without a lot of pushback from their kids. 
Yes. And especially to, and I apologize, we're, we're, we're going down a little rabbit hole, but I'm actually very, very thankful we are because a lot of our listeners have, you know, young adults who have an FASD who want to hear what you have to say. So I, I promise everyone we'll, we'll be talking about Dr. Brown's work and Dr. Brown's book, but, but this is just something I think we all need to hear. When you have a young adult and, and to provide incentive, that is key. It's almost like you have to get the buy-in of that individual. You have to buy, you know, say, okay, here's the plan. Here's what we're going to do and, and have them buy in and say, okay, yeah, that sounds good. Okay. Let's do that. Talking about personal experience with our family, we are doing something very much like that. And what I've found, and this is, I guess this is something that perhaps you have seen in your clinical work with young adults. A lot of our safety measures that we have to put in place are really friends, family, informal supports, because unfortunately there are very few, if, if any formal supports out there for young adults that have FASD, there are support groups online and there are certain communities, certain programs, but they're very few and far between. So, you know, I'm hopeful with this legislation that will hopefully be passed this pending FASD respect act that there will be more systemic supports in place, especially with having FASD, hopefully being officially recognized as a diagnosable developmental disability. So my findings are that we as parents have to, we have to find those safety nets. We have to find those supports ourselves. Have you found that in your work, Dr. Brown? Yes. I, I too see very little uh, systematized support uh, groups or services for FASD. And um, as a consequence, um, this population has to um, really kind of attach itself to supports that are there for maybe intellectual disability and autism and so forth. But I'm hoping the legislation will change that as well. I should note that um, they seem to be ahead of us in Canada on this issue. Um, And circles of support in Canada are, um, are, are alive and well. They, um, they consist of um, fairly large support groups for individuals with FASD, and it's more systematic there than it is here in the States. And um, so using uh, that as a model, I think, would be wonderful if we can kind of strive for that in the United States. Agreed. Agreed. A hundred percent. That's, that's a recurring theme on our show is that we, we look to Canada and other countries look to Canada too, as saying, wow, look at these systemic supports that are in place. You know, yes. there's so, even one province in Canada even has an FASD court. Yes. Yes. <laughs> We've spoken about that quite a bit on our show and, and how wonderful that is, you know, for the whole world to say, yes, FASD, this is what happens. These are unique circumstances. We need to treat this brain-based whole body disability for what it is and have that acknowledged during the judicial process. So yes, yes, we've been having our eye on that that court system and, and keeping up with what's going on in the news. So thank you for talking with me about this, Dr. Brown, because it is such an important issue that that whole early intervention support, early diagnosis support, 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 and then school's done. And then now what? So, so just being able to talk about that and address 
some of those key points are, are really helpful. I know for our listeners and, and especially me, I'm, I'm taking very fastidious notes as, as you're speaking. So let's talk about the work that you've done in the past year and then what's led up to your book, because this book is so, so it's so comprehensive. My goodness. And, and it's meant for clinicians. It's meant for researchers. However, if you get the opportunity to read the book or download the ebook, really, there's a lot that we parents and community caregivers can, can glean from this information, you know, for, for our parenting journeys. So let's talk about the past year and, and what led you to, um, to writing, compiling and editing your book. Well, I've done a lot of writing over the years. Um, I've done book chapters and published uh, peer-reviewed articles throughout my, my um, professional career. But um, I was actually, the book idea was something that I've been talking to my colleagues about and nobody wanted to do the work involved. It's, um, it takes a lot of work to edit a book. I had no idea. <laughs> and um, I was approached by um, an editor at Springer who asked me to do the book. And she had read some of the, um, the articles that I'd published and, um, and uh, thought that the uh, field needed a book like this because there really isn't um, a textbook or a manual on FASD of this nature. And um, so I told her I, I would do it. <laughs> this was right before COVID. <laughs> and so, Throughout um, the um, 2020-2021 period of time when we were all on, on lockdown or various kinds of lockdown, I gave birth to this book. <laughs> and um, with the help of, of wonderful authors, and um, I um, went to people who um, had done research in the field and were highly regarded researchers. I also went to cl clinicians whom I had worked with in the field and um, attorneys who were experts on fetal alcohol spectrum disorders and judges. And so this book is really um, a compilation of the work of a lot of great minds with a lot of experience, all kinds of experience. And uh, there's a chapter in here by three judges, one from the US, one from Canada and one from New Zealand. And um, I've even got uh, a chapter from uh, an attorney and a prosecutor in here. There are uh, chapters in here on how to talk to birth mothers in terms of getting them to the point where they feel comfortable about talking about their prenatal alcohol use. And um, I have chapters in here about how to test for it, how to medicate it, and that might be very interesting to your, to your listeners. Uh, the medication that has been found effective for some of the symptoms in yes. FASD. Yes, absolutely. And, uh, a chapter on neuroimaging, um, which we are now using, that's pretty much standard in our high stakes evaluations in the forensic context. There's a chapter in here on how um, FASD is very similar functionally to intellectual disability and, and therefore should be given the same services as ID intellectual disability is in our country. And there's a chapter in here on the, um, the functional behavior and consequences of FASD. So um, a lot of material, um, a couple of doctors have written about diagnosing FASD, what they look for, 
just a, just a variety of things. And um, it's comprehensive because the field needed something really comprehensive. Hopefully, there will develop somewhere a program or two on training people on FASD to work in the clinical and the forensic context. That's my hope. That gives me hope too. That's wonderful that this book could be to, to help implement a systemic model for working with individuals with FASD. Wow. Oh my goodness. So in this week's social media, we will be sharing information about Dr. Novick Brown's book as a resource and, and just going through some of the topics, subtopics that she has explained. And then we will, at the end of this episode, share uh, where you can purchase or download Dr. Novick Brown's book. So what are the biggest takeaways? This is a lot of fantastic information for the whole community, not just those in the judicial system, but those in the medical research, psychological, educational, and, and you know, obviously parents and, and caregivers. What are some of the biggest takeaways that you want our audience to know about this book and why it's so important? And like you said, why it's so needed now? One of the important things about this book is it can be used as a handbook by individuals in the field to teach themselves more about FASD. Uh, this is a, a useful book for therapists or people in the mental health field uh, to learn more about clients who might have FASD. Um, all psychologists go through uh, graduate school without ever having any kind of specialized training on FASD. Um, reading this book would give them essentially uh, postdoctoral training on FASD. And the same thing is true for many doctors who go through medical school and residencies without having much training on FASD. Um, I train uh, graduate, uh, medical school graduate students and, um, and um, residents on FASD, and many of them have had very little information throughout medical school training. So it's meant as a handbook for that population. It is also meant as a handbook for the forensic experts in our country. I would say, based on my experience, that 95% of forensic experts do not know much at all about FASD. And they're evaluating people. And it's likely that 20 to 25% of the population they see have an FASD and it's under their radar. They don't see it because they don't know how to recognize it. This book will help those individuals educate themselves about what to look for. Um, I think this, another takeaway from this book is, is for um, parents of children with FASD to understand all of the aspects um, involved in assessing the conditions and uh, diagnosing the conditions. Um, it will help people understand better their, child's be their, their children's behavior if their children have FASD, because there are ex explanations in this book for why certain behaviors occur, what underlies those behaviors, the kind of brain damage, and sadly, where some of those behaviors can lead if that proactive support and attention is not given in the formative years. So the, the handbook, I guess another takeaway is it's, it's, a, it's a warning to parents about, about how um, 
bad it can it can get sometimes if um, attention is not paid. And then finally, it's a um, it's a resource for um, I think um, people in government to understand how complex and important and serious the diagnosis is, how similar to intellectual disability it is, how uh, it should not be confused with something like ADHD, which can be serious, but is not nearly as serious or complicated and does not have nearly the kind of negative consequences that FASD has if um, that uh, structure is not provided in that guidance. Absolutely. Other diagnoses, brain-based diagnoses, such as ADHD or even autism, that gap in adaptive functioning is not as profound as it is with FASD. So I think that's why, however, again, however, most individuals with FASD have an average IQ. So I think you have that double-edged sword of, okay, well, individuals with an FASD have such a challenge with executive functioning and adaptive functioning, which we know leads to decision-making and, and consequences, and they are unable to recognize it. Yet, many individuals with FASD do not have that IQ that, you know, everybody looks at and says, oh, it's, it's above this certain level, then, you know, we, we can't we can't call it anything. So I'm really glad that you're addressing that in this book. Yes. And I, and uh, we make that point several times in this book. IQ is so misleading. It's all about executive functioning because executive functioning directly predicts adaptive everyday behavior. And um, one of the chapters in the book, uh, the entire chapter is about that essentially. So, um, Again, this would help uh, parents understand the significance of the brain damage and how misleading that IQ is. Um, By the way, I should note, IQ is misleading for the individuals who have the FASD as well, um, because when they're in a quiet, structured, calm, um, familiar environment, they can think pretty well. Uh, They can make uh, some decisions that are pretty good if they're not making them rapidly, not under pressure, and, they, and there's not much complexity to the decisions. And there's such a disconnect between the IQ and the functioning. Um, that's important, I think, for parents to understand if they don't already. And of course, if you're raising a child with FASD, you get it. You know it. We, we talk a lot about Trying Differently Rather Than Harder by Diane Malvin as a good introduction book about FASD, this book would be like the postgraduate course of of that. You really dive into in in different fields about FASD and why, you know, I, I wrote down, you know, verbatim what you said, executive functioning directly predicts adaptive functioning and, and those behaviors. That is so important for us to know. And not just, you know, okay, we have that soundbite, but really read like through your book, really understand why so that we can be proactive. You know, I I think that's a word that we need to use more in the FASD community is, is proactive. We have to be proactive because there's just so much misunderstanding about FASD. And sadly, um, I, I deal as a forensic, um, evaluator with the retroactive. Yes. the, The diagnosis and, uh, what happens when all the proactive, supportive um, 
kinds of services are not done in advance, I see the downside and uh, it's so sad and it can be prevented. I mean, all the negative, uh, the secondary disabilities, all the, um, the trouble with the law and the uh, substance abuse and so forth can be prevented. But again, it takes a lot of attention and structure and proactive guidance. Which your book will provide sample studies, just in information going into that as a handbook. It's a very comprehensive handbook for anyone in the field of FASD. So I'm, I'm this, it gives me hope. Although your, your view as, as a forensic specialist, people don't really associate that often with hope. However, what you've learned and you see retrospect that of, of what people, what things could have been in place. This gives me hope for the younger generation, you know, for, for those who listen to our show, who have children that are young or, or even elementary age to say, okay, let's put things in place. Let's, let's be proactive. Let's be a squeaky wheel at that IEP meeting, or let's find that wraparound service or, or whatnot. That's why we're doing what we're doing. And, and I really strongly believe that that's, that's how your book can help, um, not only help the community and the, the clinicians and those in the justice system, but definitely the parents and the caregivers. So that gives me hope. So let's talk about how people can purchase your book, download it, and, and also just if they want to get in touch with you, if they have any questions about things in particular, I'd like to share um, how your book and how what you do can be a resource for our listeners. Uh, Yes. Well, the book is available through Springer. Um, I don't get any proceeds from it, and I'm glad. (laughs) Um, And Springer um, can supply the book either hard copy or um, online, as you say, an electronic copy. And Springer is easily accessible online. And uh, just typing in the title of the book or my my name, uh, Natalie Novick Brown, we'll get there. Um, I'm very accessible. If people have questions, um, my email, I always respond to my email, drnataliebrown at gmail.com. And uh, happy to, um, to provide whatever uh, information or support or links that I can. Uh, there's a wonderful resource, resource at the uh, University of Washington, Kay Kelly, Catherine Kelly. And Kay runs the legal resources um, division at the Fetal Alcohol and Drug uh, Unit at the University of Washington. And Kay is another excellent resource. Uh, somehow, I don't know how she does it, but she, she has a network of, um, of people all over the United States and the world actually, whom she knows. And she's just outstanding at connecting people with, with resources. And there's also um, a new resource um, handbook coming out. I'm not sure if it's out. I think it might be ready uh, that Barbara Morse um, has, has done. And um, I don't know if you've heard about that. Uh, Kay Kelly has some um, information about that. So if people want to contact me, I can get them to uh, Kay and to that resource manual. Fantastic. And when this episode airs, we will have those links and that information available in our social media posts, as well as in our program notes for today's episode. So that's oh, wonderful. 
We, um, I think uh, Kay notes the resource in the, uh, either the preface or the foreword of the book. Okay. Um, but she, you'll probably want to contact her to make sure it's up to date because it was changing at the last minute when this went to press. Okay. So that's great. And we will share that information, um, at, like I said, in the social media uh, posts and as well as in, in our program notes. So, so Dr. Novick Brown, thank you so much for coming on our show and talking about your work, having this conversation with me about transitioning from school to, to young adult and, and beyond, and especially about this book. I mean, I, on behalf of parents listening, thank you very much for the time and the effort and the sheer magnitude of this, you know, this task, because this book is really, really comprehensive, informational and resourceful. So, so thank you. Well, thank you for your lovely words. I really appreciate it. And Dr. Brown, I like to end our episodes on words of hope because, you know, when we hear FASD and talk about FASD, oftentimes we don't hear hope with that. And uh, I like our listeners to, to leave our episodes with words of hope that they can take away on their journey. So from your vast experience, clinical research, and being an author and editor of this amazing book, what words of hope do you have for listeners out there? Knowledge gives hope. Understanding the condition in every way that it manifests can provide a way to help individuals, children with FASD, grow up without having the negative outcomes that we see in in those who don't have the right kinds of services and supports. So knowledge is at the base of it. Understanding the condition, understanding what can go wrong, and understanding some of the things that can help things go right is critical. That's the foundation. That is powerful. And we know that knowledge is power and that gives us hope because if we can have, if we as parents and caregivers and as a community can be empowered to help those with FASD, then we are making change. So I appreciate those words of hope. Dr. Natalie Novick-Brown, thank you so much for being on FASD Hope today. My pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thanks again for listening to FASD Hope with Natalie Becchione. If you like our show and want more information, check out FASDHope.com or please leave us a five-star rating and review and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you join us again next week and remember to be informed, take care, and always have hope.